Section 38 of The Natural History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, Volume 2, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 38. Chapter 13. The Classification of Birds. The first distinctive characteristic among birds is that which bears reference more especially to their feet. They have either hooked talons or else toes, or else again they belong to the web-footed class, geese, for instance, and most of the aquatic birds. Those which have hooked talons feed for the most part upon nothing but flesh. Chapter 14. Crows, birds of ill omen, at what seasons they are not inauspicious. Crows, again, have another kind of food. Nuts being too hard for their beak to break, the crow flies to a great height, and then lets them fall again and again upon the stones or tiles beneath, until at last the shell is cracked, after which the bird is able to open them. This is a bird with a very ill-omened garrulity, though it has been highly praised by some. It is observed that from the rising of the constellation Arcturus until the arrival of the swallow, it is but rarely to be seen about the sacred groves and temples of Minerva, in some places indeed not at all, Athens, for instance. In addition to these facts, it is the only one that continues to feed its young for some time after they have begun to fly. The crow is most inauspicious at the time of incubation, or in other words, just after the summer solstice. CHAPTER fifteen, THE RAVEN all the other birds of the same kind drive their young ones from the nest and compel them to fly. The raven, for instance, which not only feeds on flesh but even drives its young, when able to fly to a still greater distance. Hence it is that in small hamlets there are never more than two pairs to be found, and in the neighborhood of Cranon, in Thessaly, never more than one, the parents always quitting the spot to give place to their offspring. There have been some differences observed between this and the bird last mentioned, Ravens breed during the summer solstice, and continue in bad health for sixty days, being afflicted with a continual thirst more particularly, before the ripening of the fig in autumn, while on the other hand the crow is attacked by disease after that period. The raven lays at most but five eggs. It is a vulgar belief that they couple, or else lay, by means of the beak, and that consequently, if a pregnant woman happens to eat a raven's egg, she will be delivered by the mouth. It is also believed that if the eggs are even so much as brought beneath the roof, a difficult labor will be the consequence. Aristotle denies it, and assures us in all good faith that there is no more truth in this than in the same story about the ibis in Egypt. He says that it is nothing else but that same sort of billing that is so often seen in pigeons. Ravens are the only birds that seem to have any comprehension of the meaning of their auspices, for when the guests of Medus were assassinated, they all took their departure from Peloponnesus and the region of Attica. They are the very worst omen when they swallow their voice as if they were being choked. CHAPTER Sixteen: THE HORNED OWL The birds of the night also have crooked talons, such as the owlet, the horned owl, and the screech-owl, for instance, the sight of all of which is defective in the daytime. The horned owl is especially funereal, and is greatly abhorred in all auspices of a public nature. It inhabits deserted places, and not only desolate spots, but those of a frightful and inaccessible nature. The monster of the night, its voice is heard not with any tuneful note, but emitting a sort of shriek. Hence it is that it is looked upon as a direful omen to see it in a city, or even so much as in the daytime. I know, however, for a fact, 
that it is not portentous of evil when it settles on the top of a private house. It cannot fly whither it wishes in a straight line, but is always carried along by a sidelong movement. A horned owl entered the very sanctuary of the capital in the consulship of Sextus Palpilius Hister and L. Pedanius, in consequence of which Rome was purified on the knowns of March in that year. Chapter 17. Birds, the race of which is extinct, or of which all knowledge has been lost. An inauspicious bird also is that known as the incendiary, on account of which we find in the annals the city has had to be repeatedly purified, as, for instance, in the consulship of L. Cassius and C. Marius, in which year also it was purified in consequence of a horned owl being seen. What kind of bird this incendiary bird was we do not find stated, nor is it known by tradition. Some persons explain the term this way. They say that the name incendiary was applied to every bird that was seen carrying a burning coal from the pyre or altar, while others, again, call such bird a spinternix, though I never yet found any person who said that they knew what kind of bird this spinternix was. I find also that the people of our time are ignorant what bird it was that was called by the ancients a clivia. Some persons say it was a clamatory, others again that it was a prohibitory bird. We also find a bird mentioned by Nigidius as the subis, which breaks the eggs of the eagle. In addition to the above there are many other kinds that are described in the Etruscan ritual, but which no one now living has ever seen. It is surprising that these birds are no longer in existence, since we find that even those kinds abound among which the gluttony of man commits such ravages. CHAPTER Eighteen, BIRDS WHICH ARE BORN WITH THE TAIL FIRST among foreigners a person called Hylas is thought to have written the best treatise on the subject of augury. He informs us that the owlet, the horned owl, the woodpecker which makes holes in the trees, the trigon and the crow, are produced from the egg with the tail first, for the egg, being turned upside down through the weight of the head of the chick, presents the wrong end to be warmed by the mother as she sits upon it. CHAPTER Nineteen: THE OWLET the owlet shows considerable shrewdness in its engagements with other birds, for when surrounded by too great a number it throws itself on its back, and so resisting with its feet, and rolling up its body into a mass, defends itself with the beak and talons, until the hawk, attracted by a certain natural affinity, comes to its assistance and takes its share in the combat. Nigidius says that the incubation of the owlet lasts sixty days during the winter, and that it has nine different notes. CHAPTER Twenty the woodpecker of mars there are some small birds also which have hooked talons the woodpecker for example surnamed of mars of considerable importance in the auspices to this kind belong the birds which make holes in trees and climb stealthily up them like cats mounting with the head upwards they tap against the bark and learn by the sound whether or not their food lies beneath they are the only birds that hatch their young in the hollows of trees it is a common belief that if a shepherd drives a wedge into their holes, they apply a certain kind of herb immediately upon which it falls out. Trebius informs us that if a nail or wedge is driven with ever so much force into a tree in which these birds have made a nest, it will instantly fly out, the tree making a loud cracking noise the moment that the bird has lighted upon the nail or wedge. These birds have held the first rank in auguries in Latium since the time of the king who has given them their name. One of the presages that was given by them I cannot pass over in silence. A woodpecker came and lighted upon the head of Elias Tubero, the city praetor, when sitting on his tribunal dispensing justice in the forum, and showed such tameness as to allow itself to be taken with the hand, 
upon which the augurs declared that if it was let go the state was menaced with danger, but if killed disaster would befall the praetor. In an instant he tore the bird to pieces, and before long the omen was fulfilled. CHAPTER Twenty One: BIRDS WHICH HAVE HOOKED TALONS Many birds of this kind feed also on acorns and fruit, but only those which are not carnivorous, with the exception of the kite, though when it feeds on anything but flesh it is a bird of ill omen. The birds which have hooked talons are never gregarious, each one seeks its prey by itself. They nearly all of them soar to a great height, with the exception of the birds of the night, and more especially those of larger size. They all have large wings and a small body. They walk with difficulty, and rarely settle upon stones, being prevented from doing so by the curved shape of their talons. CHAPTER Twenty Two: THE PEACOCK We shall now speak of the second class of birds, which is divided into two kinds, those which give omens by their note, and those which afford presages by their flight. The variation of the note in the one, and the relative size in the other, constitute the differences between them. These last, therefore, shall be treated of first, and the peacock shall have precedence of all the rest, as much for its singular beauty as its superior instinct, and the vanity it displays. When it hears itself praised, the bird spreads out its gorgeous colors, and especially if the sun happens to be shining at the time, because then they are seen in all their radiance and to better advantage. At the same time, spreading out its tail in the form of a shell, it throws the reflection upon the other feathers, which shine all the more brilliantly when a shadow is cast upon them. Then, at another moment, it will contract all the eyes depicted on its feather in a single mass, manifesting great delight in having them admired by the spectator. The peacock loses its tail every year at the fall of the leaf, and a new one shoots forth in its place at the flower season. Between these periods the bird is abashed and moping, and seeks retired spots. The peacock lives twenty-five years, and begins to show its colors in the third. By some authors it is stated that this bird is not only a vain creature, but of a spiteful disposition also, just in the same way that they attribute bashfulness to the goose. The characteristics, however, which they have thus ascribed to these birds, appear to me to be utterly unfounded. CHAPTER Twenty Three, Who was the first to kill the peacock for food? Who first taught the art of cramming them? The orator Hortensius was the first Roman who had the peacock killed for table. It was on the occasion of the banquet given by him on his inauguration in the College of the Priesthood. M. Aufidius Lorco was the first who taught the art of fattening them about the time of the last war with the pirates. From this source of profit he acquired an income of sixty thousand sesterces. Chapter Twenty Four: The Dunghill Cock Next after the peacock, the animal that acts as our watchman by night, and which nature has produced for the purpose of arousing mortals to their labor, and dispelling their slumbers, shows itself most actuated by feelings of vanity. The cock knows how to distinguish the stars, and marks the different periods of the day, every three hours, by his note. These animals go to roost with the setting of the sun, and at the fourth watch of the camp recall man to his cares and toils. They do not allow the rising of the sun to creep upon us unawares, but by their note proclaim the coming day, and they prelude their crowing by clapping their sides with their wings. They exercise a rigorous sway over the other birds of their kind, and in every place where they are kept hold the supreme command. This, however, is only obtained after repeated battles among themselves, as they are well aware that they have weapons on their legs, produced for that very purpose, as it were and the contest often ends in the death of both of the combatants at the same moment. 
If, on the other hand, one of them obtains the mastery, he instantly by his note proclaims himself the conqueror, and testifies by his crowing that he has been victorious, while his conquered opponent silently slinks away, and, though with a very bad grace, submits to servitude, and with equal pride does the throng of the poultry-yard strut along, with head uplifted and the crest erect. These two are the only ones among the winged race that repeatedly look up to the heavens, with a tail, which in its drooping shape resembles that of a sickle raised aloft. And so it is that these birds inspire terror even in the lion, the most courageous of all animals. Some of these birds, too, are reared for nothing but warfare and perpetual combats, and have even shed a luster thereby on their native places, Rhodes, and Tanagra. The next rank is considered to belong to those of Melus and Chalcis. Hence it is not without very good reason that the consular purple of Rome pays these birds such singular honours. It is from the feeding of these creatures that the omens by fowls are derived. It is these that regulate day by day the movements of our magistrates, and open or shut to them their own houses, as the case may be. It is these that give an impulse to the fasces of the Roman magistracy, or withhold them. It is these that command battles or forbid them, and furnish auspices for victories to be gained in every part of the world. It is these that hold supreme rule over those who are themselves the rulers of the earth, and whose entrails and fibres are as pleasing to the gods as the first spoils of victory. Their note, when heard at an unusual hour or in the evening, has also its peculiar presages, for on one occasion, by crowing the whole night through for several nights, they presaged to the Boeotians that famous victory which they gained over the Lacedaemonians, such in fact being the interpretation that was put upon it by way of prognostic, as this bird, when conquered, is never known to crow. CHAPTER Twenty Five: HOW COCKS ARE CASTRATED A COCK THAT ONCE SPOKE when castrated, cocks cease to crow. This operation is performed two different ways. Either the loins of the animal are seared with a red-hot iron, or else the lower part of the legs. After which, the wound is covered up with potter's clay. This way, they are fattened much more easily. At Pergamus, there is every year a public show of fights of gamecocks, just as in other places we have those of gladiators. We find it stated in the Roman annals that in the consulship of M. Lepidus and Q. Catullus a dunghill cock spoke at the farmhouse of Galerius, the only occasion, in fact, that I know of. CHAPTER Twenty Six: THE GOOSE The goose also keeps a vigilant guard, a fact which is well attested by the defence of the capital at a moment when by the silence of the dogs the commonwealth had been betrayed. For which reason it is that the censors always, the first thing of all, attend to the farming out of the feeding of the sacred geese. What is still more, too, there is a love story about this animal. At Aegeum one is said to have conceived a passion for a beautiful boy, a native of Olenos, and another for Glaus, a damsel who was a lute-player to King Ptolemy, for whom at the same time a ram is said also to have conceived a passion. One might almost be tempted to think that these creatures have an appreciation of wisdom, for it is said that one of them was the constant companion of the philosopher Lycides, and would never leave him either in public or when at the bath by night or day. Chapter twenty seven Who first taught us to use the liver of the goose for food? Our people, however, are more wise, for they only esteem the goose for the goodness of its liver. When they are crammed, this grows to a very large size, and on being taken from the animal is made still larger by being soaked in honeyed milk. And indeed, it is not without good reason that it is a matter of debate, who at first was, that discovered so great a delicacy, whether in fact it was Scipio Metellus, a man of consular dignity, or M. Seius, a contemporary of his, and a Roman of equestrian rank. 
However, a thing about which there is no dispute, it was Messalinus Cotta, the son of the orator Messala, who first discovered the art of roasting the webbed feet of the goose and of cooking them in a ragout with coxcombs. For I shall faithfully award each culinary palm to such as I shall find deserving of it. It is a wonderful fact in relation to this bird that it comes on foot all the way from the country of the Morini to Rome. Those that are tired are placed in the front rank, while the rest, taught by a natural instinct to move in a compact body, drive them on. A second income, too, is also to be derived from the feathers of the white goose. In some places this animal is plucked twice a year, upon which the feathers quickly grow again. Those are the softest which lie nearest to the body, and those that come from Germany are the most esteemed. The geese there are white, but of small size, and are called gante. The price paid for their feathers is five denarii per pound. It is from this fruitful source that we have repeated charges brought against the commanders of our auxiliaries, who were in the habit of detaching whole cohorts from the posts where they ought to be on guard in pursuit of these birds. Indeed, we have come to such a pitch of effeminacy that nowadays not even the men can think of lying down without the aid of the goose feathers by way of pillow. Chapter 28 Of the Comagenian Medicament The part of Syria, which is called Comagene, has discovered another invention also. The fat of the goose is enclosed with some cinnamon in a brazen vessel and then covered with a thick layer of snow. Under the influence of the excessive cold it becomes macerated and fit for use as a medicament, remarkable for its properties. From the country which produces it, it is known to us as Comagenum. Chapter 29. The Canapolix, the Canaros, the Tetrao, and the Otis. To the goose genus belong also the Canapolix and the Canaros, a little smaller than the common goose, and which forms the most exquisite of all the dainties that Britannia provides for the table. The tetrao is remarkable for the luster of its plumage and its extreme darkness, while the eyelids are of a scarlet color. Another species of this last bird exceeds the vulture in size, and is of a similar color to it. And indeed there is no bird, with the exception of the ostrich, the body of which is of a greater weight, for to such a size it does it grow that it becomes incapable of moving and allows itself to be taken on the ground. The Alps and the regions of the north produce these birds, but when kept in aviaries they lose their fine flavor, and by retaining their breath will die of mere vexation. Next to these, in size, are the birds which in Spain they call the Tarda, and in Greece the Otis. They are looked upon, however, as very inferior food. The marrow, when disengaged from the bones, immediately emits a most noisome smell. CHAPTER Thirty: CRANES by the departure of the cranes, which, as we have already stated, were in the habit of waging war with them, the nation of the pygmies now enjoys a respite. The tracts over which they travel must be immense if we only consider that they come all the way from the eastern sea. These birds agree by common consent at what moment they shall set out, fly aloft to look out afar, select a leader for them to follow, and have sentinels duly posted in the rear, which relieve each other by turns, utter loud cries, and with their voice keep the whole flight in proper array. During the night also they place sentinels on guard, each of which holds a little stone in its claw. If the bird should happen to fall asleep, the claw becomes relaxed, and the stone falls to the ground, and so convicts it of neglect. The rest sleep in the meanwhile, with the head beneath the wing, standing first on one leg and then on the other. The leader looks out with neck erect and gives warning when required. These birds, when tamed, are very frolicsome and even when alone will describe a sort of circle as they move along with their clumsy gait. 
It is a well-known fact that these birds, when about to fly over the Yuxine, first of all repair to the narrowest part of it that lies between the two promontories of Cryomatopon and Carambus, and then ballast themselves with coarse sand. When they have arrived midway in the passage they throw away the stones from out of their claws, and as soon as they reach the mainland discharge the sand by the throat. Cornelius Nepos, who died in the reign of the late Emperor Augustus, after stating that thrushes had been fattened for the first time shortly before that period, has added that storks were more esteemed as food than cranes, whereas at the present day this last bird is one of those that are held in the very highest esteem, while no one will so much as touch the other. End of section 38